0: modern
1: modern modern Modern.
2: Modern. we're prepping for a voyage modern the force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why
1: don't you make that a double
0: modern bar cart
2: what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 266 of the modern bar cart podcast i'm your host eric koslick Thanks for joining me for another Bar Cart Foundations episode, where we select one very specific thread from the vibrant tapestry of spirits, cocktails, and drinks culture, and follow it to see where it leads. This time around, the subject of our inquiry is Modernist Mixology, which is a loose confederacy of techniques and drink-building practices that leverages specialized tools and substances to create cocktails more fanciful and, shall we say, extra than what we normally encounter. The idea for this roundup has been kicking around in my head ever since Punch published an article about stirring your Negroni with sushi rice. And... At first glance, this is a pretty absurd headline. Sushi rice and Negronis would seem to have nothing to do with one another. But as soon as my brain had about three seconds to process, I was like, of course, now I see what they're doing. That actually maybe kind of makes sense in a certain way. This prompted me to think about how modernist mixing techniques have been on the rise as a way to differentiate bar programs, especially post-pandemic. But from where I stand, this uptick in popularity comes with a two headed dilemma. First off, people may be familiar with one or two of these techniques as popularized by a certain bar, a certain cocktail or format, or a particular show or publication. But for the most part, these techniques are understood separately rather than as a group. And to me, that's like staring at a couple trees and claiming to understand the beauty of the forest. And secondly, if this trend continues to locate and ignite pockets of cultural and attentional fuel such that even more bars and consumers become obsessed with making and imbibing these tricked-out intellectual drink pieces, then it's possible that old-fashions without exotic fat washes, daiquiris that haven't been clarified, and yes, even Negroni's sans sushi rice, may become the exception rather than the rule in certain markets. I certainly don't have the power to control who makes what and how many people post about it on Instagram, but I do have the resources to offer you a slightly more zoomed out view of modernist mixology than perhaps you've experienced to date. We'll feature a couple of different cocktails along the way by means of example. So with that, let's jump in. First, let's talk about this term, modernist mixology, and the other term that many would use with it interchangeably, molecular mixology. These terms are logical extrapolations of molecular gastronomy and modernist cuisine, two phrases that have been bandied about in the food world for the last 20 to 30 years. The term molecular gastronomy came first and was coined by a Frenchman named Hervé This in his 1995 thesis entitled La gastronomie moléculaire et physique. According to This and let's be honest here, Wikipedia, molecular gastronomy expresses itself in 3 key areas the social phenomena linked to culinary activity, the artistic component of culinary activity, and the technical component of culinary activity. And we can see how that might play out sort of in reverse order in the real world, right? A chef employs a certain technique that might change the way a dish or component looks or tastes, which in turn will affect how it's then plated and presented, which In turn, will affect how guests experience it, share it, and communicate it to their friends and family. Indeed, it might even change the way they think about a certain dish or ingredient altogether. Hervétis is a big science guy. He's all about using cutting-edge tech, treating kitchens like labs, and completely transforming ingredients. So for him, the molecular metaphor worked great. He was trying to tear things down to their component parts and reassemble them again in new and dazzling ways. But as more chefs started exploring these techniques and novel presentation methods, it became clear that the term molecular had its drawbacks. It kind of sucked the warmth and the soul out of the pursuit to a certain extent. And it almost demanded that something on the plate needed to be dehydrated or gelled or powdered or crystallized in order for a dish to be valid. So about 10 years after Thies started championing molecular gastronomy, a number of chefs, including Nathan Mervhold, Ferran Adria, and David Chang, began to favor a slightly more generous term modernist cuisine. Now, for the purposes of this episode, we'll stick with that second wave and adopt the term modernist mixology for two primary reasons. A, it doesn't let us become lazy and simply assume that something really technical or complicated needs to happen in a lab setting, and B, it allows this constellation of tools, ingredients, and methods to age and transform gracefully. After all, what's modern is simply what's happening in the present, and that means it's a term for all times and seasons. Case in point, the age-old practice of clarification. If you've been a fan of this podcast for a while, it's likely, nay, almost inevitable that you've sampled or tried your hand at making a clarified milk punch. The key element that it operates upon is surprise. You take a sip of some chilled, limpid, perhaps lightly tinted liquid, and you're greeted with a rich, creamy mouthfeel that doesn't seem like it should belong to the contents of your glass. Of course, there's nothing new about Milk Punch. It's been around for hundreds of years. Ben Franklin had a very famous recipe for it that people still use today. But like so many products and techniques, things go in and out of vogue. Once we got our hands on refrigeration technology, we didn't need to clarify things to make them shelf stable, like milk punch, so it largely went by the wayside until it was rediscovered during the cocktail renaissance. So although clarification is totally a modernist mixology technique, we can't claim that it's new at all. For a great rundown on clarified milk punch, you should check out our two part interview with Eamon Rocky, creator of Rocky's Milk Punch, in episodes 213 and 214. Here's Eamon describing the one trick that will allow you to create perfectly clear milk punch at home.
1: The misconception about clarified milk punch is that your curds are the enemy and that you should do whatever you can to get rid of them. The curds are your only friend when you make milk punch. And what I mean by that is, you're describing the process that almost every bartender immediately goes for when they make it. And I'm always just so confused as to why. I think there's probably some ding-dongs that put videos on YouTube showing an incorrect process. and, And I'm so sorry that that is the case. But that is not how you make Milk Punch, at least not in the most effective way. And and quite simply, the way you make Milk Punch well is you actually use a very porous filter. You don't want a tight filter. You want the loosest filter possible. And what I what I tell people is, you know, use a tablecloth, a cotton tablecloth. Use an inside-out bed sheet or, or sorry, a pillowcase. Inside-out pillowcase is just about the best clarification filter you can get. And the reason is the reason is because they don't stop the flow of liquid at all. But you know what they do stop is the curds. And so what happens is you pour your uh, not particularly attractive initial break, initial break of the punch with all the curds floating around in it, you pour it whole, all of it, all of it into, let's say the, the, the pillowcase inside out. And what happens is all the curds will fall onto the sides the insides of the of the pillowcase and they clog the very loose weave of the cloth that means that the curds are actually doing the work for you you're not clarifying the punch you shouldn't be clarifying the punch through various levels of of tighter and tighter micron filters like chinois cheesecloth you know uh coffee filter blah 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 You should just be clarifying it through the curds and so as you pour all that liquid into the pillowcase and all the curds start to group together and form a protein matrix that's exactly what it is whether you're doing gelatin clarification agar clarification casein clarification doesn't matter it's the same thing right it's the same thing um so all of these curds are falling into uh, the shape along the inside of the pillowcase and as they really take form and they, they knit together to form that matrix, you simply take the, the punch and you the liquid that's come through and you pour it gently back on top. And you let that cycle go over and over and over and over and over until all of the casein, all those curds have adhered to each other and and formed their own organic, natural, single filter. And if you just repeat that cycle, you will get a clear punch, and it will be beautiful. And you will maximize your yield because you're not losing any to the cheesecloth, to the coffee filter, to spilling it, to whatever. Right? You're you're just you're allowing the same amount of liquid to start the process and the same amount of liquid to stop. The only thing you should be losing is the volume and weight of the casein itself, which you don't want anyway.
2: Granted, there are definitely more molecular styles of clarification, which are probably best described and summarized in Dave Arnold's seminal text, Liquid Intelligence. These include agar clarification, where you turn your liquid into a gel, which allows solids to be separated, racking using a separatory funnel, which permits you to separate the heavy sediment in the bottom of a settled juice from the clear liquid at the top, and even the use of culinary centrifuges, which physically spin the solids out of suspension in a liquid. Most of these methods are out of reach for home bartenders due to obvious space and cost constraints. But that doesn't mean we can't go to our favorite high-end modernist cocktail joints and enjoy them courtesy of our better funded professional colleagues. The logical bedfellow of a clarified cocktail is a wash or infused cocktail where something is added rather than removed from one or more ingredients. In the wild, you're most likely to encounter this as a drink with a fat-washed component. This is achieved by combining the usually liquefied form of pretty much any fat, from olive oil to bacon fat to beeswax, with a cocktail component, usually the base spirit then allowing the fat to congeal and form a puck, which can then be removed. In the end, you're left with the flavor of that fat source and a whisper of the rich, unctuous texture, but you're not actually drinking a mouthful of greasy oil. The drink in the venue that put this technique on the map was the Benton's Old Fashioned, developed by New York bartender Don Lee at the famous PDT, which for those of you who aren't in the know, stands for please don't tell. It's a stunningly simple drink, something you can make at home almost without a second thought. You just combine two ounces of bacon fat washed bourbon, the original used Benton's bacon, thus the name, with one quarter ounce of maple syrup, which is a two to one sugar to water ratio, so it acts like a rich simple syrup, and then a few dashes of bitters. That's it. It's your standard old-fashioned build. I did a reel about a year ago demonstrating how to make a bacon fat washed old-fashioned, which I'll post over on the show notes page for this episode. This is basically a shot-for-shot remake of the Benton's Old Fashioned, except I'm cheap and I use boring simple syrup instead of maple. I'm sure my Canadian ancestors are rolling in their graves. But bacon fat aside, the real reason why I bring up washed drinks is because there's, like I mentioned earlier, this recent trend that involves stirring your Negroni with a couple bar spoons of uncooked sushi rice. Like so many trends... It's covered by Punch Magazine in an article that I'll link to in the show notes and which has been making the rounds on our community discord server. So email me and request a link to join if you'd like to see what other folks are saying over there. Essentially, instead of fat washing a single ingredient, this approach involves starch washing the entire cocktail. The sushi rice method perfectly embodies modernist mixology because it uses an unusual ingredient to transform an otherwise familiar drink. And it comes with the added bonus of getting to watch your bartender stir a drink with rice in it. Watching all those little white grains swirl around is altogether different than watching someone stir a normal Negroni. So it takes you out of that normal presentation and the end product is going to be a bit hazy even due to the starch from the rice. Now, There are also examples of bartenders toasting rice to evoke certain nuttier flavors and aromas and then using that rice to infuse a falernum, which could then be used in a shaken drink. So let's not make the mistake of assuming that this procedure is strictly limited to Negronis and other stirred cocktails. It certainly can be applied to the shaken drinks realm. But before we move on to discuss Other modernist techniques, I want to read you the recipe for the Negroni riff that the aforementioned Punch article is inspired by, and hopefully it can work as a sort of cautionary tale for modern mixology. The cocktail's name is the Negroni de Nubes, and it was developed by a trio of bartenders at the Brooklyn Bar Leyenda. To make it, you'll need one and one quarter ounces of unsmoked mezcal, one ounce Blanc vermouth, preferably Dolin, Three quarters of an ounce of strawberry-infused suze capelletti mixture, which is, I think, a two-to-one ratio of Capelletti to Suze-infused strawberries. One dash of saline solution and two tablespoons of uncooked rice. Combine the ingredients in a mixing glass with ice. Stir until well-chilled and diluted, then strain into a rocks glass over a, a large cube. Garnish with a grapefruit twist, and enjoy. Now, one way to describe this cocktail would be, in a word, brilliant. It's painstakingly formulated. Each ingredient bears a personal touch, from the strawberry infusion of the split modifier Amaro to the use of white vermouth instead of dry or sweet to the restraint required to opt for a non-smoked mezcal. Everything is so intentional that if presented with this cocktail by one of its creators, you almost couldn't help but feel that it represents the apotheosis of the bartending craft. Another way to describe it would be overly precious. I personally don't know what about this drink is supposed to be a Negroni. There's no gin. It's not equal parts. I don't understand why we need saline, except as a virtue signal to imply that the person making it knows something you don't, and every ingredient feels shoehorned in to make up for the idiosyncrasies of all the other creative choices. The only thing that makes sense to me in the end is the grapefruit twist garnish. A Negroni is supposed to be simple. That's one of the pleasures of drinking one, and without the eerie artificial yellow of Sue's the plasma pink hue of strawberry and the haze from the sushi rice, a regular Negroni is beautiful enough when served over a nice clear rock. So the choice is yours. You can choose to view the Negroni Danubis as a modernist mixology marvel or, like me, you can ask the age-old question, if every plank in the ship of Theseus is replaced with apart from the Death Star, can it still be called the ship of Theseus. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. And I thought I'd take a moment to talk to you about one of my favorite times of the year. Grilling season. To me, there's few things better than popping a couple sirloins or New York strips on the grill. And it's even better... When I know that my beef is local, grass-fed, and sustainably raised by independent farmers. That's what Near Country Provisions is all about, and they do a heck of a lot more than just steaks, including wild-caught seafood, pasture-raised pork and chicken, and even add-ons like eggs, cheese, and soup bones. The variety of cuts available is staggering, and I've literally never experienced a subscription service with as many awesome customization options. Each month, I simply set my preferences, and a beautifully curated selection of proteins arrives at my door on dry ice. If you live in the mid-Atlantic, head on over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. Becoming a near-country subscriber is easily one of the biggest quality-of-life improvements I've made in the last several years, so I hope you'll give near-country provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. Next up on our modernist mixology hit list is a set of techniques that leverage water's most cocktail-friendly property to transform ingredients and flavor profiles. I like to refer to this category as simply freeze-thaw, but it's actually derived from an age-old practice known as jacking, from which we derive the word applejack. This is when farmers would leave a hard cider out in the cold to freeze, then remove the ice from it, leaving a more concentrated, i.e., boozier end product. But as deep freeze technology has improved, it's now possible to subject spirits to such cold conditions that we can remove the water content from them almost entirely, and then replace that water with something else, like perhaps a fruit juice, or some other flavored water product, like coffee. This practice has come to be known as switching, or switch finishing, and it was pioneered by our past guest Ian McPherson of Panda & Sons in Edinburgh, Scotland. Here's Ian describing the process.
0: For me, with anything to do with cocktails, you know, if I read about a technique to make beer, or wine, or even just a chefing technique, I, I will practice it so I understand it, follow, you know, certain recipes to do that. And there was one called Eisbock, and this is a very uh, primitive style of beer, very delicious, but comes from Germany, where again, it was an accidental technique, but basically they left the beer out in the cold, Winter months, and it froze using the process of freeze concentration. So, a large part of the water that makes up beer was frozen, and what they did was they siphoned that off, and they were left with you know more concentrated, higher ABV beer. I, I guess like Applejack, like jacking in the states as well. Um, same process, and so I was like, cool, I'm gonna try this out. And again, like like Lego, I like dismantling things so I can really understand the building blocks of what makes what, whatever it is. Um, so I did this just to understand the technique and you know what I was finding was when I was tasting the frozen water or large parts of it as water was there was a lot of flavor there you know you know obviously when you hear about frozen water you just think water but when I was trying it, I was like oh hang on there's a lot of flavor being taken out of, of, of during this process So then I was thinking about it, you know, I guess in terms of Lego, like, well then, what if I add a different block in? So I guess this is where the name comes from, switching out the frozen element and adding a different um, building block in. Um, And this is kind of where switching became, because I was like, well, if I can take flavors out of the um, ingredients, I can add different flavors in. And yeah, this is really where switching uh, was born. And, you know, a lot of people would get to me going, yeah, this is freeze distillation. I know it's a bigger grey area over in, in the States, but you know, if you look at the Oxford dictionary, you know, it states that, you know, distilling is about boiling water, you know, to do this. And the difference is when you when you cook something, it's changing the flavor by heat. But when you're freezing something, you're just concentrating the existing flavors that are there. You're not you're not changing them. You're just concentrating the flavors. So this was kind of the catalyst, I guess, to really take on board Sub-Zero as a complete category and taking it forward.
2: In addition to breaking spirits down into their Lego-like components and switching them around, freeze-thaw can also be used to transform ingredients using pressure. Using a process he has since developed called suppression, Ian freezes spirits and whole fruit into two liter stainless steel kegs. When everything is frozen solid, the flavor from that fruit leaches into the drink as the cells burst from the pressure. So as you can see, the power of freezing has a lot of potential when it comes to making our familiar cocktails a little bit more interesting. As a little writer comment on the whole notion of freezing, I should note that perhaps the most common technique you'll see at bars is the use of liquid nitrogen to chill down glassware and certain ingredients. In his book, Liquid Intelligence, Dave Arnold describes a technique called nitro-muddling, where he uses liquid nitrogen to freeze delicate herbs like basil, for example, so that they don't release the more soapy, bitter polyphenols when they're smashed and incorporated into a drink. But... Aside from that very esoteric use case, yeah, in most cases you're simply going to see bartenders using liquid nitrogen to chill down your glassware. And you know what? I'm not one to turn down a perfectly chilled glass, and neither should you. So let's see. So far, we've talked about clarifying, fat and starch watching, and all the crazy things you can do with freeze-thaw methods. What could possibly be left over? Well, how about air? What happens when you play around with different ways to aerate your drinks? By way of demonstration, let's take a look at a famous drink from yet another famous New York bar. The bar is Bar Dante, and the drink is their legendary Garibaldi cocktail. To make it, you'll need, very simply, one and a half ounces of Campari and four ounces of fresh squeezed orange juice. In a highball or Collins glass with ice, add the Campari, then top it up with the orange juice, garnish with an orange wedge, and enjoy. Here's the thing though, you gotta spin that orange juice in a high speed blender, maybe with a cube or two of ice until it's nice, nice, nice and frothy. This is a technique known as citrus fluffing, and it can be done using everything from orange to grapefruit to pineapple juice. Essentially, the air opens up the aromas of the citrus juice and creates a cloud-like texture that really allows you to slow down and savor this low ABV sipper. There are two main things to say about citrus fluffing by way of analysis. The first is that it's one of the easier techniques to execute at home. Right? Most of us have blenders. And the second is that it's one of those techniques that doesn't result in a wholesale reimagining of the drink. After all, the ingredients are the same. There's nothing added or taken away, but the changes to the appearance and texture are nonetheless meaningful, and they can really decide the difference between a B-plus or A-minus drink and one that dazzles with an A-plus plus. Speaking of stuff that you can do with air in a cocktail, we would be remiss if we didn't address the trend that had everyone talking a few months ago when the Netflix show Drink Masters hit the airwaves. That's right, it's time to talk about foams and airs. Now, right off the bat, my question is, what's the difference? Are foams and cocktail airs made of different things? Is one lighter or heavier than the other? Or are they just two different ways of saying the same thing? So first... Let's talk about what they have in common. Both foams and cocktail airs employ thickening or foaming agents to create bubbles that sit on top of a cocktail, or perhaps in a slightly more culinary application, they can be served alongside the cocktail. as kind of like a contrast. Generally, this is done with the help of a substance known as a surfactant, which decreases the surface tension in liquids. Think about it. The less surface tension there is, the easier it is for those little delicate bubbles to keep from popping due to pressure. When it comes to differences, the primary one is that foams do tend to be thicker. And that can mean that the bubbles are smaller and less airy or that it sets up as creamier and more rigid sitting on top of the drink instead of merging and dissolving into it or you know what, it can mean both of those things at once. Because cocktail airs are lighter and do have that side effect of dissolving and sort of breaking down over time, they tend to be made a la minute and separately from the drink then added on top right at the moment of service. The classic, example of foam in the mixed drinks world is to use an egg white or aquafaba to make a nice rich head on your whiskey sour or clover club cocktail by employing the dry shake or reverse dry shake method. Nothing fancy there, just good classic mixology. However, certain modernist ingredients and tools have emerged to make this process even easier and, well, foamier. The big one that you'll hear a lot is called lecithin, and I personally found the first couple sentences on the Wikipedia page to be extremely helpful in understanding this class of compounds. It reads, lecithin, from the ancient Greek lakithos, yolk, is a generic term to designate any group of yellow-brownish fatty substances occurring in animal and plant tissues which are amphiphilic. They attract both water and fatty substances, and so are both hydrophilic and lipophilic, and are used for smoothing food textures, emulsifying, homogenizing liquid mixtures, and repelling sticking materials. End quote. So... A lot of Greek in that blurb with the philia and the lakithos yolk thing. But the big takeaway is that these substances can be isolated from either animals or plants, which is great when taking dietary constraints into account. And they solve the classic problem of oil and water not wanting to mix. Now, in practice, using ingredients like lecithin or other similar thickeners like agar-agar or gelatin is that they need to be incorporated into the foam with different ratios relative to the other ingredients that you're mixing with. That means foams and airs end up being more like baking, where precision is everything. So you're going to want to get yourself a very sensitive kitchen scale, something that can register a change of at least 0.1 grams if you want to start playing in this world. The other elephant, of course, in the room when it comes to foams and thickeners is that fancy shiny metal contraption that has a nitrous gas adapter and spits out really consistent culinary grade foams. Our friend and past guest Nick over at Cocktail Chemistry has a great video on how to use these tools, which are known as EC or ISI whippers, so we'll be sure to link to that over on the show notes page. Depending on what you put in them, EC whippers can produce foams with a varying degree of textures, so they're great tools. But when it comes to something this technical, I'm really going to recommend that you do some of your own serious outside research in the form of reading and YouTube videos before you decide to invest in one for home use. Of course, The delight of using cocktail foams and airs is that you can create a dichotomy of flavors in the glass. One flavor sitting next to another that then transform as they gently merge. And to wrap up our modernist mixology medley, we're gonna stay on that subject of flavor dichotomy by exploring a method called spherification. This technique is probably the most overtly molecular in the entire episode because it involves a very dramatic and very visual chemical reaction that takes place when two compounds are mixed. The result that bartenders are driving for in this scenario is to generate tiny little spheres, almost caviar-like, that can be used as a flavored garnish or as a component in a drink. Here's past guest Calson Hoyle explaining, in a nutshell, how the process works.
0: Spherosification is basically a method in the food molecular space where you take two elements. One of them is uh, salt and another one is, you know, uh, so this is usually it's sodium alginate and calcium lactate. So the goal is to have them react when they mix together and form this bubble, right? So depending on which one is mixing into what, it can either be a big, bubble where you can make a giant mojito bubble, or tiny spheres where it's sodium alginate, but it's, you know, you form a membra- a membrane with the calcium. Lactate. So the salt forms the kind of like membrane. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's spherification
2: To get a bit more in the weeds, and I do mean weeds here since sodium alginate is derived from seaweed, you can essentially drive for one of two outcomes in the spherification world. One big sphere with lots of liquid inside, which is actually called reverse spherification, or a bunch of little spheres with little to no liquid inside. The only things you need to manipulate are which compound gets dropped into which and, of course, the amount of liquid you drop at any given time. So in the case of the caviar, the regular spherification, you're dissolving your sodium alginate into the liquid that you want to spherify, usually some sort of juice or sweet liquid. Then you use something like an eyedropper, a syringe or a squeeze bottle to drop tiny drops into a bath of calcium salt. This can be something like calcium chloride or calcium lactate if you're looking to make a single large sphere on the other hand you just flip that process you dissolve the calcium salt into what you're looking to spherify then you drop a bigger more consolidated amount of that liquid into a bath of sodium alginate this is what i referred to earlier as reverse spherification unlike foams which have a pretty standard kind of obvious service method, you really need to think about what you're trying to achieve with spherification. If you're making caviar, you need to think about where and how it's going to be served, essentially how the guest gets it into his or her mouth, and what flavors you're looking to evoke when it gets there. And in the case of the large cocktail spheres, well, the problem is it doesn't really look like a cocktail, and you can't serve it in a glass. This means that you've gotta put a lot of thought into things like context, plating, and the narrative that you're going to present to the guest when you serve it. Otherwise, the experience might be a little bit confusing. But hey, if there's one thing I truly admire about modernist or molecular mixology and their kind of brother and sister trends in the gastronomy worlds, it's that they take risks with ingredients. And with enough time, practice and experimentation, both professional and home bartenders can use these tools and strategies to develop creations that truly do move the cocktail world forward. I'm Eric Koslick. I hope this overview of modernist cocktail techniques was useful for you. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, please email me at podcast at so that I can send you a link to join our community discord server where all the fun of the podcast happens in between episodes until next time. May your milk punches be perfectly clear your foams rich and creamy and your Negronis ricey or not. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed and a little bit of modernist mixology magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production copyright 2023.